water bottle. He says, just use mine. So <laughs> this is what he did today. Uh, but I think he said something more like, use my water bottle, I think as you say it, right? Yeah, so, which is another one of the many reasons I love you. And um, yeah, I've been loved so well by these pastors of this church. So if you're a member here, I hope you know that these pastors love you dearly. They've loved me well. They love you well. That's evident from every conversation I have with them. And if you're looking for a church home, this is a very good place to plant yourself, uh, to be loved, not just by them, but by the whole church family of Covenant Hope. Um, yeah, it's a joy every time we get to take a little trip over the bridge, not too far, and get to be with you. And so uh, we've just been excited to be with you today to worship our good God together. And I'd like to begin our time now with a question. It's a maybe slightly different variation of what Matt asked us earlier, which is this. What type of relationship do you have with wisdom? What type of relationship do you have with wisdom? Is wisdom like a close friend to you, a companion, or maybe a little bit more like a stranger or a distant relative that you check in with every now and then? Maybe you think that's a little bit weird. I don't think of wisdom as this thing that I have this personal relationship with. It might feel weird to personify something like having an ability to act on sound principles. And if that's you that has that reaction to that question, then you are in the right place. Because we'll be seeing wisdom is not just this impersonal thing. It's this very personal thing that we have a relationship with. And like with all relationships, it will require time and investment. But thankfully, the deposits you make over time in that relationship you have with wisdom will reap benefits on your life. And behind all true wisdom is an all-wise, all-knowing God. To know Him is to know wisdom. And to grow in knowing Him is to grow in knowing wisdom. And He loves giving it to all who ask. So I want to pray one more time that God would give us wisdom even in this time as we study his word together. Let's pray. Father, you alone are infinitely wise. We, we look at you and we see how much wisdom we lack. And we also know that you alone can make us truly wise. So as we study your word today and in the days ahead, would you help us store up truth? Because we want to see more of you. And in seeing you, we want to find you as more valuable than all other things. So help my good friends at Covenant Hope grow in seeking you and trusting you as they cultivate this practice of growing in wisdom. Make them a gospel-rich family whose knowledge and worship of you will spill over, affecting their neighbors. Would you do great, marvelous things through the little I have today? and greater things through them as a people. We ask this in faith, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So as we heard already, there's hardly a better place to go in learning about wisdom than the Proverbs. Right in the middle of your Bibles, you'll find the Psalms, and then the book right after that is the Proverbs. It's, it's part of the wisdom literature in our scriptures. And today we'll be in chapter 4, verses 1 through 19 that Drew just read. And a lot of times when we think about Proverbs, I think we tend to think about what happens in chapters 10 onward where uh, there's this wealth of practical, miscellaneous teachings. 
I didn't say random, though, because I do believe God sovereignly ordained even the ordering of those miscellaneous teachings. But our passage today comes before that, in the middle of this gateway or introductory section of the Psalms, which we find in chapters 1 through 9. And I think we learn, especially from this section, that wisdom isn't just about having the right answer in a situation. No, it's much more holistic than that, right? It doesn't just apply to family or to career or to other relationships, right? It's, it's a bigger, broader picture. It's living rightly in light of God's presence that allows us to act accordingly and all these other things. That is to say, before we respond well in everyday life, we have to set a trajectory to be seeking after truth, wisdom, to make it our constant companion, our lifelong friend. And the Holy Spirit is the divine author uh, of all of Scripture, and Proverbs 1.1 introduces us to the human author of this book, Proverbs. There we read, these are the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. And up to this point, that author, Solomon, he keeps addressing someone, a son, saying, my son, my son, my son. And then interestingly, you get to our passage today. It's the first time he says sons in the plural. Well, we know Solomon did have one physical earthly son, Rehoboam. But I think what one of the things that's happening here, I've been helped by a lot of commentators on this point, is he does have this bigger picture in mind of who this is for. This is for the whole spiritual family, all of God's covenant community, that we can all have this relationship with wisdom. And our passage will show us a few ways that we get to relate with wisdom. And the first is this, begin with wisdom. Begin with wisdom. We see this in verses 1 through 9. Those begin, we read, Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive. Why? That you might gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. So right away, Solomon, in this passage, he's urging us to listen, to attend to these words. He says, don't forsake these good precepts. I think the assumption we can make is truth is easy to ignore. It's easy to neglect. If we're not careful, truth will just pass us by as we're going about our way. And so he pleads. He says, listen up. Be attentive. Hear these words. Accept them. So right away, just think about your own life. When you wake up each day, do you see the need that you have to be attentive, to, to have wisdom to help you navigate all of life and whatever will come your way? If you haven't already made the lifelong decision to begin with wisdom, just listen to verses 5 and 7, what they say. Get wisdom. And then the beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. In other words, it's the first primary thing, and it's so important to lay down a foundation of truth. Right? Every time we see repetition in Scripture, we're just caused to slow down and to let it even germinate in our minds and our hearts. And we have to remember, too, in the time that this was written, there was other forms of wisdom literature, right? Places like Egypt and Mesopotamia, they had their own wisdom literature. This isn't this genre that was only exclusive to God's Word. But then God's Word stood apart from all those other forms of wisdom literature. It cut through all the noise with a different form of, of wise sayings and a different definition of what true wisdom actually is. And we find that definition for true wisdom in Proverbs 1, verse 7, where we hear, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is where we begin with wisdom. 
Wisdom is available to all who do what? They, all who fear God, all who tremble before Him, who know Him and follow Him as their Lord and their King. In Proverbs 1 verse 20, we'll talk about wisdom crying aloud in the streets, in the markets. If you think about the streets, the markets, this is the place where literally everyone gathered, the rich and the old. Well, I'm sorry, the rich and the poor, the young and the old, literally everyone. <laughs> um, yeah, so wisdom is beckoning to anyone who will pay attention. It's not just for the most exceptional Christians. And if you've met them, tell me who they are, because we're all in this together. We all need wisdom. All of us can possess it. So friends, are you beginning each day with wisdom? Do you see your need for wisdom? It's not just going to show up on your doorstep unannounced one day if you don't recognize your need for it. So invite wisdom in. Make it a loyal friend. Make it a lifelong companion. A few verses earlier, we see chapter 3, verse 33. The Lord's curse is on the household of the wicked, but He blesses the home of the righteous. So if you're a member here, make both your personal home and your church home a place where truth and righteousness is held up high by you and shared together. Love and cherish truth. We read in verse 3 about a son and a father. And whether intending to or not, I can't help but imagine King David could have loomed large in Solomon's mind uh, just as he penned these words. And we read, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, which, if we do take it literally, would talk about Bathsheba. And again, whether or not this personal family heritage is influencing these words intended to all of God's family, I do think it helps just to think about how easily any generation can depart from wisdom, can let wisdom pass them by. When we neglect wisdom, we see we suffer sin's consequences. So we know King David, Solomon's father, he's this mighty man after God's own heart. And yet we also see moments of great folly when we study his life, right? Where the king is leveraging his power, something good, intended for good by God, and yet he distorts it, uses it to sin, committing wicked acts, first in taking another man's life, sorry, first in taking another man's wife, and then taking out that man's life, right? So David becomes an adulterer and a murderer. David wants Solomon to set a trajectory of wise decisions. We know that from Scripture, from 1 Kings, where we see him heeding his father's advice. So the Lord appears to Solomon in a dream. That's 1 Kings 3. And God tells him to ask for whatever you want, and I'll give it. And then Solomon responds in 1 Kings 3, 7, Now, Lord, my God, you've made me your servant king in place of my father, David. But I'm only a little child and don't know how to carry out my duties. And can you guess what he asked for in verse 9? Wisdom. He says, Give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and distinguish between right and wrong. For who can govern this great a people? So Solomon, in humility, he sees his need to begin in wisdom. He recognizes he needs that thing, wisdom, more than long life, lots of money, the ability to administer justice. So what does God do? He gives him wisdom. And he also gives him all those other things too. So if you miss the news headline from that passage, it doesn't hurt to make it a priority in your own life to ask the Lord for wisdom. You can ask him for all sorts of things, but don't neglect your need for wisdom. But if God asked you what you wanted most today, would that top the list? 
I think about the things our hearts so often crave, like a job, a house, a child, respect from others. The list could go on and on. What type of value do you place on wisdom? And isn't it encouraging to remember that even in families like Solomon's where sin has brought brokenness into a household, God loves to redeem broken things. So if you haven't begun in wisdom yet, you can begin in wisdom today. You could set a new trajectory. When you read get wisdom, your translation might say acquire. This word is also used in the book of Ruth as this Old Testament language for acquiring a wife. We we read there about Boaz, this virtuous man of the Lord who acquires Ruth, this language of possession, but not in this way to dominate her, right? He wants to redeem Ruth. He prizes and loves her. He wants to protect her with her mother-in-law, Naomi. If you've ever been to Matt Kendall's house, you probably know he just has a big shelf of romance novels. It's still right? Um, okay. Um, so much like that, uh, you know, love stories, they just have a way of, you know, just speaking to Matt Kendall and all of us. But long before Matt Kendall started storing up those romance novels, the Bible had the best romance stories of all, these stories of drama and romance to help us understand the Lord is the ultimate definition, the fullest expression of love. And that's actually not true, so don't give him a hard time. But why do I mention this? Well, I think the Scripture is very unique in allowing us even to hear these stories and these images of love and romance to show us things that are valuable, things that our, our hearts are maybe tending to neglect but can crave, right? So Solomon, he's this great romancer who also penned the Song of Solomon. And he penned these words to show us something's romantic about wedding ourselves to truth for a lifetime. In verse 6 and really throughout the Proverbs, we see wisdom personified as a female, a trusted companion, this righteous spouse worthy of pursuit. Her pursuers, we learn, get two things. They get protection and honor. Do not forsake her, verse 6 says, and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. That's her protection. And not just protection, but verse 8 shows honor. Prize her highly and she'll exalt you. She'll honor you if you embrace her. So when you're loyal to Lady Wisdom, verse 9 shows you'll be earned a graceful garland and a beautiful crown. Now early readers, when they saw this image of the crown, they wouldn't think about royalty, kings and queens. They think about honor. Right When an athlete won a competition, they would be awarded this headdress that brought beauty on the victor for what they'd achieved. And in a similar gesture, in weddings, brides would place this beautiful garland atop the bridegroom's head, and it would show the honor that they hoped to bestow long after the vows were exchanged. And while not all of us become married, and Scripture upholds singleness as a worthy, God-honoring option, for some, marriage does provide a helmet of safety, this realm of protection, right? Good marriages, it can bestow life and honor through this complementary, sanctifying union. Now, how different is that picture from what we see the other woman, the adulterous Lady Folly offer, those who pursue her, right? Lady Wisdom, Lady Folly, they're both calling out. In Proverbs 7, 
21 through 23, we read of how that other woman seduces with persuasive speech and smooth talk. But her followers, it says, are like an ox to the slaughter, a stag caught fast. Right? These animals are entrapped and snared, and they don't know, the passage says, that it'll cost their life. So when we flirt with falsehood, when we flirt with foolishness, it might seem enticing. It might seem like it could lead to good or enjoyment. But this embracing of sin in the end, it will always bring peril, destruction. And the scary thing is you can have all the brains and intellect in the world, and you can let wisdom pass you by. Just think about all the successful, well-loved, well-known people you know who haven't bowed a knee to God, right? If we were to just whiteboard names, we could probably be here for days. And the greatest folly of all might be thinking that our righteousness is somehow good enough, that it somehow earns our acceptance before God ultimately. And let Philippians 3 will we'll say those righteous acts are like filthy rags before the Lord. So true Christianity, you might think about it as adhering to sound doctrine, And yes, that's true. But what you see when you study all these precious doctrines are they find their fulfillment, culmination in this message around a person, Jesus. Right? God in great infinite wisdom who's existed for all eternity. In great wisdom, he sent Jesus Christ to earth. Jesus is what we see John 1 called the Word made flesh. Through him, the Father is communicating what He's like to a world that's in peril, a world that doesn't know him and needs him. 1 Corinthians 1 calls Jesus the wisdom of God, right? So if we don't think about wisdom as a person, listen up to to these references that Scripture gives us, even to show us how Jesus is this ultimately wise one. Jesus will say of himself, one greater than Solomon has arrived, right? All these Individuals throughout Old Testament history leading up to the culmination of the perfectly wise one. All others before him have failed to even carry a just iota of of his wisdom. Maybe you think, man, that sounds nice, but surely if there's a, a wise being like that, he only wants to dwell with the brightest or the best among us. But no, Scripture attests that all God's people have had a terrible track record. None of us from David to Solomon to you or I, none of us gets a pat on the back. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We all need a good shepherd to come in and rescue us. Jesus comes as that good shepherd. He comes as the perfect heavenly husband. He's willing to rescue a cheating, adulterous spouse. And he's sent by a loving father to rescue wayward children who've squandered the riches of the family. And since we've neglected God, forsaken His wise way, since we've sided with those in foolishness and folly, that means we've followed after the prince of this world, Satan. And where is he leading us? To a place of danger, destruction, literally with hell to pay for all eternity. And though this is all of our destiny without Christ, thank God that he did give us a better way. This one greater than anyone who'd come before or after him would come to earth as a baby in the incarnation. He'd come as a son. 
And he grew in wisdom throughout childhood, right? Always accepting the Father's words, always holding fast to his instruction. Christ's life, it earns him this beautiful, graceful garland, right? And what did they place on him instead? We sang about it earlier, a crown made of thorns. And then they hung him on a cross to endure a sinner's death that you and I deserve, to where he became a substitute for all adulterous people who've lived their life in folly. But this is the good news. If we turn from sin, if we turn to that Savior in faith, we don't have to rely on our track record, our wisdom, right? We can count on the sacrifice and the, the goodness stored up uh, from another, right? So come to Jesus in faith. Accept this message. If you wonder if the sacrifice that Jesus made was acceptable, don't just look at the cross. Look at what comes after the resurrection where Christ was raised from the dead in great power by an infinitely wise God who's capable of doing so. And in the, at the end of life, that crown of achievement that Christ earned for that perfect life, it'll be bestowed on all who know him. It doesn't make sense, and yet that is the good news of the gospel. So if you have questions what it means to throw yourself on that mercy, that message of Jesus, the first step you'll have to take in this lifelong journey, walking in wisdom, is to believe in Jesus, to, to trust him in faith. So if you want to know what that looks like, I'm here after the service. Any member of Covenant Hope, would it would be their greatest joy to walk with you in the days ahead, to take as long as it needs to, to help you see how beautiful Jesus is, how wise he is, how loving he is, and, and capable of um, redeeming you from brokenness. We'd love to see more people invited into God's royal family where wisdom and insight are just a few benefits of getting to know him. And if that's already you, if you've begun with wisdom, the next thing following, beginning in wisdom is this. Continue in wisdom. Continue in wisdom. In verses 10 through 19, we see receiving wisdom and truth isn't this one-time thing where we just switch it on once and then we can go about our business sort of on autopilot. Right? We have to keep acquiring wisdom, storing up more knowledge that leads to godliness. If I could see hands, does anyone feel like they've stored up enough wisdom for a lifetime? Are they kind of... Too full. Uh, that's a trick question. Don't raise your hand. Um, but that shouldn't discourage us because there's nothing more, no investment that we can make that could be more promising than wisdom. And maybe you think, okay, now you're likening wisdom to riches. I kind of followed you there with, with the relationship we can have with, with, it, with wisdom, but are you treading in the prosperity gospel territory talking about money? Well, no, right? God knows how tempted we are to love the things of this world, the things we can't take with us to eternity. And so Proverbs will often liken wisdom to things like silver and hidden treasure. And growing in wisdom is a bit like investing in the world's most promising stock. It might not seem like a lot's happening when you're watching the ticker from day to day, but those investments you make in wisdom will reap dividends in your life. Verses 10, like verse 1, will show the father, again, pleading for the child to listen, and not this passive sort of listening, but to accept, to hold fast his words. Right, this lifelong 
relationship with wisdom. It involves turning back to the source of what's true continually, where we continually trust and let the Father's words fuel our obedience. We saw a few benefits from wisdom already, like security and honor. And verse 10 adds another motivation, assuring the years of your life will be many. Chapter 3, verse 2 similarly says, For length of days and years of life, these words will add to you. Right? So if sin only brings about death, turning from it, repenting, and recommitting to truth keeps recalibrating the course of our life to, to bring about spiritual life. Before this passage, the previous chapters have already held out these two diverging paths to us. Chapter 2, verse 18 speaks of another road that leads to death. And then chapter 3, verse 23 says, walk on securely so your foot will not stumble this other direction. Verse 11 again returns to this image of two paths, suggesting there's this primary trajectory where we're staying on. And this has even challenged me as I've thought about my struggles with sin, where often we think, ah, you know, I just kind of go back and forth from one road to another. No, I think there's this ultimate path we're on. And it doesn't mean we don't struggle with sin. We all know that's true if we look within. But if you've ever been on a trail, you know it doesn't take long to veer off from where you hope to go. And that's exactly how sin works, where you might want to explore this avenue and then you find yourself going further down the trail and it's hard to change paths. You can get lost, or maybe I'm just a terrible hiker, but that's been my experience. Verse 14 and 15 warns, do not enter the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go on. Turn away. Pass on. Such strong language used here. Flirting with sin is not this cute little detour, but it's changing paths down a road of deep darkness that leads to a cliff that plunges to our demise. And few will destroy lives or others around them overnight, but one sinful decision will lead to another till this avalanche builds and we collapse under its weight. And so each day we, we have to reset ourselves again, knowing we're in great danger of being allured in the trap of wickedness. And Satan is such a terrible ringleader, right? His destination is this fiery pit. He wants to lead many astray. So what do you do this week to ensure you stay the course that God has laid out for you? Right? We think about these ordinary means of grace like studying his word, praying, enjoying fellowship together. These guideposts are even calling us back to um, the way, the truth, the life. So as the world dangles options before us each day and entices us, we can hold fast to the words of truth. It's this war waged against falsehood where we must keep in step with the Spirit, as Galatians says, even as we neglect the, the old ways of our flesh. There's a way that leads to death and a way that promises life. And I think fools will think that they can chart their own path in life where they can Ignore others' wise counsel. If we ultimately ignore not just others' wise counsel, God has given us a, a multitude of counselors in which we can find safety, but ultimately ignore God's word, the source of all true wisdom, I think we're more likely to believe these lies dangled before us. But we can counter each of those with a better, truer word that God offers. And so, sadly, 
We do see some progress further into sin. And yet, others walk the path of righteousness. And we see this language of progression also used for, for that type of life in verse 12. We read, they walk and their steps aren't hampered, then run without stumbling, right? So as we're sanctified, we pick up the pace from walking to running. I think of other places in Scripture like Isaiah 40, 31, how the Lord renews the strength of those who run so they do not grow weary, and those who walk and do not faint. Paul uses this language, too, of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Flirting with sin, it leads to this dark, deep pit. If we take the bait, we'll be ensnared in this hook that doesn't let go. And then we even see the intensity of, of this picture in verse 16, warning of those who can't sleep until they've done wrong or made someone else stumble, right? So it becomes this personal thing to this collective thing where others are harmed through our sin. Wickedness might seem unthreatening to you, but it's so deceptive, right? It's not this fun trip in the park. It's this short-lived experience of momentary pleasure that leads to violence, right? It's this false security, false serenity. Verse 17 will add to this language of, of uh, sleep, the one of appetite, saying, for they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. You'll always be craving something in your life, right? If your appetite is spoiled by sinful things, you won't be content until you feed the beast once again. And these images, sleep, hunger, and thirst, they're not these passive states that just go away, right, the more sanctified we become. They're continuous, where daily we need more sleep, food, and drink. And if you make wickedness your sleep, your food, your drink, you'll always be craving more. You'll never be satisfied with just a little. The more I've studied this, the more I've just grown to appreciate and see how sin really is like pulling up a chair to dine with wickedness, right? It's drawing from wells that will never quench our thirst. And zealousness for evil also doesn't just affect us, it affects others around us as we begin to create stumbling blocks for others we know and love, and even division where we hurt people rather than help them. And yet again, the opposite would be for our souls to hunger and thirst after the living God, to find our rest there, to starve for Jesus and to, to just know that there we can find safety. Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So feast on Christ. Starve that old appetite that has desired sin. Taste instead of the bread of life. Drink instead of your hope in the new covenant made by His blood, know that He satisfies in every way sin does. And even thinking about the, the Passover meal uh, under the New Covenant, the Lord's Supper, where we get to look at these visual reminders of how Christ alone is our sustenance, and we take this as a family, remembering that together. And when we make wisdom this lifelong companion, it's not like we're stuck navigating life with this arbitrary moral compass, right? We have a very real personal guide that's promised to us. We have the Spirit of God. Paul tells us to keep in step with the Spirit. And as we do so, he 
enables us to progress in truth and to grow in discernment. Now, I've not said the path of following Christ is an easy road, right? Really just the opposite. There are no shortcuts. We eventually discover, as Eugene Peterson says, life is like a long obedience in the same direction. But we also can't forget that compared to this way of folly that's a bumpy path full of stumbles and scrapes, darkness everywhere, Christ's ways are smooth and straight and secure. This path of righteousness, verse 18 says, is like the light of dawn, light of dawn shining brighter and brighter until full day. And one day those of us who progressed down that well-lit path will see the light of the world face to face, this light that the darkness could not overcome. He will take over and illuminate everything. Right, So look forward to that day as you continue in wisdom. So after being exhorted to commit ourselves to wisdom, to begin with it and to continue in it throughout life, the final thing we'll see is this. Pass wisdom along. Pass wisdom along. Now, this is an underlying theme, I think, throughout our passage where we not only begin and continue in wisdom, but we also get to share it. We get to pass it on to others. Wisdom can be this group project where we're not merely just hoarding it for ourselves, but sharing it, transferring it, even from one generation to the next, lest it be lost. If you think about the wisest people you've ever known, they didn't become that way without learning wisdom from others. Behind every Charles Spurgeon, there's somebody like his grandfather, James, who passed on divine truth to him. And this can be hopeful and exciting, but it can also be a challenge just to consider it's both the words we speak and the life we live that are speaking a message to the people around us, right? They have bearing on others. And not only others around us today, but generations to follow. But the God who speaks ensures faith comes from hearing. And He sends and equips us into the world where His agents, with the authority and the ability to speak words that promote life. So as we learn wisdom, we also have to keep listening and keep gleaning from the wise. It might seem obvious, but as you think about your life, how often do you make little of your need to let others in, to speak in? Teachability involves seeing our need and asking for counsel from trusted guides. It's such a gift that we have in the local church, right, where God surrounds us with others. But how does this look practically for parents and kids and everyone else? This is where I want to end our time today. If you're a parent, to begin, recognize the role God's given you. Uh, listen to the words of this father to a son, how wisdom is imparted. Your life's trajectory can do your children great good or great harm. So bring them up in the Lord. Pass on the good father's good words. Every parent will have high hopes for their children to earn the grade, make the team, get the spouse, become self-sufficient. But what, are, what better goal could they possibly have than, than ensuring these children know truth? Now, no parent can do what God can, redeeming a child's heart, but we can expose them to the ways of righteousness, not destruction. 
And as we do this, we do this humbly, knowing we're still children ourselves, still relying on His help and guidance daily. There's parental philosophies today that say parents and, parents and children should be more like friends, confusing that role distinction. But here we see a parent speaking truth and gentleness and love, but without apology. There's no ounce of timidity in the Father's instruction. It's not loving to withhold discipline from our children. In fact, doing so ultimately harms their life. And if you're a child or student, you'll be told everywhere you can find your own truth or forge your own path. But true wisdom is rooted in one place, as Matt said earlier, Christ. So don't wait another day, a day that's not promised, to build your life on that solid rock and foundation. You can't ride mom and Dale's, mom and dad's coattails in life. You have to make your own commitment to truth. And when God brings faithful guides to you, don't check out, don't roll your eyes whenever they suggest something at their lack of cultural relevance. Instead, obey your parents in the Lord, as Ephesians 6 says, and you accept the wise instruction offered by them as it's in the Lord. As you do so, you also help them live out their God-appointed authority and do the other verse that follows to learn to not provoke you in anger as they bring you up in the Lord's discipline and instruction. And if you don't have kids or you're no longer one yourself, you're not off the hook. Every parent, child, young adult, single person, empty nester, we all have a privilege and responsibility to impart wisdom to those around us. Maybe say, I'm ill-equipped, I'm inadequate, I'm just a little disinterested in the task. But if you wait on becoming an expert on every point of doctrine, you'll never use what the Lord has given you to help someone else, right? Even the most infant or adolescent Christian can study and know their God and pass along what they know to someone. A famous author, not a Christian, George Orwell said, each generation imagines itself more intelligent than the one that went before, and get this, wiser than the one coming after it. Each generation imagining itself more intelligent than the one that was before and wiser than the one that'll come after it. We see this generational pride all the time where the young claim they don't need the old, and the old throw up their hands saying the young are just without hope. But another author said, I like this better, multi-generational friendships can be like time travel where older saints help us understand life from the vantage point of someone who's been there. And the wisest saints know they still haven't arrived yet. Proverbs 1.5 says, let the wise also hear and increase in learning. You think about how Christ has broken down this, this dividing wall between us and God. And after this, he's instituted churches where we come together, churches like Covenant Hope. We could be this otherworldly example of what it means to break down worldly barriers, to become a spiritual body and family. Right in that body is made up of an eye that can't say to a hand, I no longer need you. And Titus 2 will remind us we're all fathers and sons, mothers and daughters. We're well positioned to be an antidote to the world's generational pride, cultivating a, a life of humility that recognizes the wisdom we need. And we can also foster a forward trajectory simply by 
sticking to time-tested, always-true ancient doctrines. It might seem counterintuitive to go back to uh, these words written centuries ago, and yet that's how God has always preserved His people, right? So when you look at your statement of faith, when you support the preaching of the Father's words from this pulpit, you're recommitting yourself to ancient, forever true wisdom. And as you proclaim truth from your lips, trust that as it goes out, God can use the message of salvation to deliver many from the spirit of the age. So Covenant Hope Church, you have a Savior, the one called Wisdom. What a privilege it is for you to personally know Him and even to know Him together and to to spread His wisdom throughout not only this city but the world. Can I get an amen? So as we get ready to close, uh, one of the hymns that Christians have sung in many places for centuries, Be Thou My Vision. This is my one request to Matt the other day. Sorry for picking on you earlier, buddy. Um, yeah, this hymn acknowledges our need for God wisdom. So I just asked Matt if even as a response from what you've heard and learned today, uh, we could sing this together, just remembering God is our vision, our wisdom. So thank you. Let me pray first. God, thank you for bringing us here today in your wisdom. Thank you for being our source of wisdom. We can know lots of things, but unless we know you, we lack understanding. And every day our TVs, our smartphones, they send us messages that we need to buy this, wear that, drive that vehicle, go to that place to find joy. So in the wake of all that noise, help us come back to your truth. Help us slow down and recognize where wisdom comes from. Teach us your ways. In Jesus' name, amen.